On Sunday mornings, we've been studying what we're calling the seven realities of experiencing God. And although we go in more depth on it on Sunday night, on Sunday morning, I've been trying to be sensitive to what is it that God wants me to sort of underline and speak in red letters for our benefit as a church. Last fall, the staff and I were looking in a very superficial way, but we were looking at those seven realities in our staff meetings. About halfway through that study with the staff, I felt very strongly sensed that God was leading us to, to do this as a church, and so here we are. And, and I hope that you've come today and each time, each week that we've met, expecting, God, I want you to speak to me. And I want to hear what you're saying to me. And I also want to hear what you're saying to us as a church family. And so I want to encourage you to open your heart wide, uh, to be as sensitive as you can to the Holy Spirit this morning as we study together. The title of this morning's message is, Why Do We Struggle to Trust God? Why do we struggle to trust God? Have you ever struggled to do that? Have you ever found that difficult, or is it always easy for you? If it's always easy for you, I was going to say something other than what the Bible describes as happening. Um, it, is, it is often a great challenge. And so I want us to look for just a moment. Exodus chapter 3, this is the moment in the life of Moses where he is encountering God who's appearing to him in a flame in a burning bush. The bush is not burning. But the flame is there in the bush. And God calls out to him, Moses, Moses. And he responds, said, here am I. And God tells him, look, take your shoes off. The place where you're standing is holy ground. And Moses drops his head, drops to the ground, and he worships. And then God begins to explain to him what he's about to do, how he has heard the cry of his people. He's going to deliver his people from Egypt and from slavery bring them to a promised land. And, and at the end of this description of what he's going to do, then he says to Moses something that rocked Moses' world. Now, as we've studied these, these realities of experiencing God, the one we're looking at today, reality number five, says that God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. Now listen if you can hear some of this in what God says to Moses. And we're looking at first at verse 10 and 11. We're going to kind of jump around, but look first at verses 10 and 11. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now is that an invitation to join God in his work? I'd say so. Now look what Moses did, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Would you pray with me? Father, it's your word and it's your spirit that we need in this hour. Father, the best way we know how, we want to humble ourselves before you. We want to remove every obstacle and barrier that's rumbling around in our mind or in our heart. We want to quiet our minds and our souls and sit still before you and listen for that quiet voice that we know is you. 
Father, would you speak to us through your word? May it change our lives. May we leave here differently than when we came in. Or I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been studying these realities, uh, there's a diagram that we've been using. Go ahead and bring that back up. Diagram. And as you see that, that representation of God and an arrow uh, that shoots out to the right, as you see that, uh, God is at work in the world. That's the first reality. He is at work around us. And what is he working to do? Well, he's working to bring every man, every woman, every boy, every girl that you know into a relationship with himself. And in an ideal scenario, God would include us by simply giving us direction as his people, and we would immediately obey and do what God is leading us to do. And so you don't have to go through all seven realities. You can go from number one to number seven, which says obey and experience. However, there's only one human being who was the son of God in the flesh, only one person who ever did it perfectly every time, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of us in our humanity, God is at work with us. And so he is, the second reality is that he's pursuing you and me for a love relationship with himself that is real and personal. I don't know what you think God is trying to do in your life. Sometimes you may think because of the difficulties or hardship that you've had that God just wants to make you miserable. And we have all kinds of wrong conclusions that we reach about God. But here's the truth. God wants you to know him. God wants you to love him, but he wants you, more significantly, to know his love and to be changed by his love. Well, as you and I are growing in this relationship with him, we discover the third reality that he wants to invite us to join him in his work of redeeming others, of, of helping others to know him. And, and that invitation comes as God speaks to us, and that's the next reality. We looked at that last week, that God speaks by his spirit always, but, but typically through four main channels, primarily through his word. He speaks through prayer. And then he typically confirms what he's saying through godly counsel, through other Christians, and through our circumstances. And we looked at that last week. If you have not, uh, were not here for that, I encourage you to go back. I think it'll be very encouraging, helpful to you as you seek to hear God. As God invites us to join him in his work, and as he speaks to us, it immediately creates in us what is called a crisis of belief. Now, for some, it may be a very small crisis, but it's always an internal crisis. When we talk about a crisis of belief, we're not talking about things going wrong in your life. We're not talking about circumstances. We're talking about something that sets up inside of you that you are suddenly put in a position where in order to respond to what God has said, I've got to exercise faith and I've got to do something. And, and it creates a problem for us. It is, it is a struggle. It is a fight. Now we're going to look at why in just a moment. But you need to understand that exercising faith is often understood in the scripture as a battle. It is a fight to trust God. On this side of heaven it's a challenge to us because I can't see I can't hear with my ears I can't touch I can't use any of my senses I'm totally out of control the whole nature of trust is I can't make it a sure thing who I'm trusting has to make it a sure thing 
At the end of his life, the Apostle Paul, after a lifetime of walking with God, hearing God, trusting God, and at the same time experiencing great difficulty, great challenges to his faith, to his very life, at the very end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. Well, what's he talking about? Getting somebody elected? I have finished the race. And then he says, I have kept the faith. And so in that moment, he, de- he says, my whole life has been a battle. My whole life has been like a race where I want to finish strong. And what's it about? My faith. And I have fought it, and I have finished, and I have kept the faith. And he wrote that just before his life was ended, and he went into the presence of Jesus. Why do we struggle? Why is it such a challenge to trust God? Why is it so difficult? This morning, I wanted to address three areas. Now, there are more than three probably, but I want to I address three in particular. Here's the first reason why it's difficult to trust God. He is moving me deeper into his kingdom and away from mine. He is moving me deeper into his kingdom and away from mine. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9 of Exodus 3. And the Lord said, and he's speaking to Moses, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now skip down to verse 9. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So God is speaking to Moses and he's telling him what he intends to do. He's telling him what his plan is. I want you to think for a moment about Moses. For the last 40 years up to this moment, for the last 40 years, his whole world has been confined to the backside of a desert. It's involved livestock. It's involved family, and all of his problems that he had in life, all of his concerns, were flowing out of that world. That was it. His whole world was confined to those things. Now, in this moment, what he discovers is that God's world is much bigger than his world. And, you know, that's where a lot of us are. That's where most of us are. We have a world. We have a place where we live, we have things that we are doing, things that are important to us, things that, we, that preoccupy our attention and all of our problems and all of our concerns flow from that. And if we are never introduced to the larger world of what God is doing, his agenda, his kingdom, that's all we're ever going to think about. That's all we're ever going to talk about. That's all we're going to pray about. My stuff, my world, my needs... My story. But when you became a Christian, God changed something very significant about your world. One night, a man came to Jesus named Nicodemus, and he wanted to 
understand what it took to know God, to, to move into God's favor and God's world. And Jesus was talking to him and he said, you know, this is John 3, 3. He says, except a man is born again, he cannot see. And I believe in this sense he meant comprehend. He doesn't see or comprehend the kingdom of God, the rule of God, that sphere where God is, no one interferes with what he's doing. No one objects to what he's doing. It's his kingdom. He's in charge completely. He says no one gets that until they've been born again. And then two verses later, Nicodemus is kind of confused. He says, born again? He said, you mean a guy's got to go back <laughs> into his mom's tummy and start over again? And, and Jesus said, no. Verse 5, John 3, 5, he says, except a man is born of water, physical birth, and the spirit, spiritual birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He can't go into that place where God rules unopposed, without interruption, without inhibition, with no one and nothing standing in his way. But that has changed about you. Before, without Christ, it was just your world. It was just your agenda. It was just your story. But when you became a Christian, he, you entered into the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul taught, describes it this way in Colossians 1, Verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness, the place where darkness rules, and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son. And so when you became a Christian, he, in a way that's supernatural, in a way that is spiritual, but in a way that is very, very real, he took you out of your world and he put you into his world. And you are no longer a citizen of this world. Now, you live here, but you don't belong here. This world's not my home, right? And so he took you and he put you into his kingdom. What does that mean? It means that as a citizen of the kingdom of God, as a son or daughter of the king, you now have access to seeing things and hearing things that no one else has. When Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, he used parables to make his points. And in the process of teaching with parables, his disciples got confused and a little concerned. And they came up to him and they said, Lord, why are you teaching them in parables? And Jesus responded to them and he said, he says, because to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. In other words, you have access to something that other people don't have access to. In fact, a few verses later, he says, Bless are your ears, for they hear, and your eyes, for they see. Because you now, as a Christian, have the capacity, as a citizen of the kingdom of God and as a child of the king, to see what God is doing and to hear what God is saying. And he wants to take you deeper into his kingdom and away from yours. Deeper into his kingdom and away from yours. When God spoke to Moses, when God speaks to you and me, our response, technically, easily, obviously, should be, yes, Lord. Obviously. But we struggle. Because I like my world. I like my kingdom. 
I like maintaining control over my stuff, making my decisions, calling my own shots. And so that's part of the reason we feel that crisis of belief is because I know God's taking me out of my little place and putting me in a, a whole planet where he wants me to play, wants me to serve, and wants me to follow him. So why is it a crisis? Moving me deeper into his kingdom. There's a second reason why there's a crisis created. And that's this. He is refining my faith and making it real. He's refining my faith and making it real. Uh, look at verse 11 and 12. Uh, you know, Moses wasn't wild about this idea that God was telling him about. And so in verse 11, Moses said to God, and we've read this, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now listen how God responds to Moses' first objection. So he said, I will certainly be with you. You know, you're just talking about what you're going to do, Moses. How can you do it? I will certainly be with you. But look, Moses, I want, to do, I want to tell you something else. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So what is he doing with Moses? He's saying, Moses, he said, I, I, you understand what I'm saying, but you think it's all about you. I'm telling you that you can trust me and I want to deepen your faith in me. And so here's what, what I'm going to do. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to show you something because there's a day coming when you're going to take all the people of God and you're going to be standing on this mountain right where you're standing right now. And then you will know that you can trust me. And then you will know me the way I want you to know me. Now he's doing this for Moses. Look again at verse 12. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. It wasn't about their faith. It wasn't about the people of God. It wasn't about the rest of the world. He said, Moses, I'm deepening your faith. I'm showing you something here. I'm doing something in your life. The refining process that God takes us through when he leads us to take the step of faith has a masterful way of clearing out all of the junk that's in our head and that it's in our heart. There are a lot of things that you and I believe that may not be true. There are a lot of things that we believe that I inherited from my father, my grandfather. A lot of things I believe that because I go to church with people who believe that. And because they all believe that, I've been infected and so I say I believe that. But there's a difference between knowing with your head who God is and experiencing who God is with your heart. And God wants to take your knowledge of him and he wants you to know it through your experience. And so he's always seeking to deepen your faith. I think one of the great examples of this is the disciples who had experienced something of who Jesus was. They had seen him heal the sick, sick people, totally wiped out, raising them up and they're walking. He saw demons cast out of people who were destroying and, and ripping people's lives up. He saw the, they saw the demons cast out. Uh, they even saw Jesus raise a little boy from the dead. And, and so they had seen all of this and they had experienced Jesus to that point. But then something else happened. And in Luke's gospel, the next thing that happens is Luke 8, 24. Um, they are gone out on a boat. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. He promptly goes down in the boat and takes a nap. Big storm comes up. Big waves. 
lightning bolts, and seasoned fishermen are terrified. And they cry out. They came to him and awoke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now what do you think they believed about Jesus at that moment? Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the waves and the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. But he said to them, where's your faith? You see, in my kingdom, when you're in my boat and I'm with you in the boat, there's no storm that you're ever going to encounter that's going to overwhelm you. You belong to me. You're mine. It's my responsibility to take care of you. They'd experienced a truth about Jesus that they, they needed to know. They had experienced a lot, but he had deepened their faith in that moment. So whenever God speaks, the, basics, the essence of that reality is whenever he invites you to join him in his work, it always requires faith and action. Let me put it another way. When God speaks to you and tells you how he wants to use you, the very next thing you do reveals what you really believe about God. When I was a kid and we were moving to the Philippines, I had to get a bunch of shots in order to go to this foreign country. And um, I mean, when they got through poking me, I was about seven years old, when they got through poking me, I felt like a pincushion. I had had shots for everything you can imagine, I think. I think they just picked up whatever was lying around and stuck it in me. <laughs> now, from my vantage point, those shots look like this. <laughs> okay? That's what they look like. Now, I'm sure they weren't that big. But for me, it was that big. I would go in, they would give me several of these, and then they would give me a balloon, <laughs> a sucker. Keep your sucker, man. <laughs> you know? So they're... They're giving me this. Now, they said that this was a good thing. This was good for me. This, would, this was something that I needed to do. The doctor assured me that that was a good thing. And that was something that I needed to do. Now, if you, I know some of you won't even go to the doctor because of this. Some of you won't go to the dentist because of this. They use an even bigger one than the dentist's office. And, and, and I know some of you won't go to a doctor for that. So, Maybe you're near death, you know you got to go, you go to see the doctor, and the doctor says, look, and you said, I knew it. <laughs> and he said, look, here's, here's what you need to do. And you know that doctor's gone to school, and you know him, maybe he's a friend, and you trust him, and you know he cares for you, he's not going to lead you wrong, he's never going to do anything inappropriate or unkind to you. But what you do next determines what you believe about the doctor. And when God speaks to you and tells you how he wants to use you, what you do next reveals what you really believe about God. Number three, why is there a crisis? The third, the third reason I want to share is this. He is leading me out of my comfort zone. Now, when he deepens my faith, that's uncomfortable. When he, um, when he takes me out of my world into his world, that's uncomfortable. But this is really where a lot of us struggle. 
He is leading me out of my comfort zone. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Listen carefully to what God is saying in verse 8. So I have come down. Who's coming down? I have come down. You could just underline the verbs. I have come down. What's he going to do? To deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, who's doing all of that? God's doing that. Now, go to verse 10 where God gives Moses very clearly the invitation to join him in his work. Verse 10. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, Moses, at that moment, forgot about verse 8. He heard verse 8, and I think he probably said amen. But then God got to verse 10, and he said, so I'm going to do these things, and the way I'm going to do these things is I'm going to send you. And Moses said, who am I? I mean, that's his first reaction. That's his first response. The problem is this. We hear God telling us what he wants to do, and we translate it right away into God telling us what he wants us to do for him. And part of that is normal because anytime God is leading you in this way, what, what you're becoming a part of is bigger than you. In fact, it is impossible for you. And Moses heard that. He heard the God-sized proportions of what it was that God was going to do and that he was sending Moses to be a part of. And so whenever we hear and we understand what it is that God wants to do, one of the reasons we know it's from God is it's way impossible, much bigger than I am. My abilities, my bank account, my talents, my resources, it outstrips everything. I got nothing that can make this happen. I got nothing to pull it off. In fact, if I say yes to this and it doesn't happen, God doesn't move in in a big way, I'm sunk. That's uncomfortable. Who likes to sink? It feels impossible because it is. One of my favorite moments in the Gospels is when all these people crowded around Jesus and the disciples. And in several of the Gospels, Jesus says, now, guys, how are we going to feed them? And immediately you watch the disciples uh, scramble because they're immediately looking at how much they got in their pocket. They're looking at their resources. They're looking at what's available to them. And, and what I like about John's gospel is he, he tells us why Jesus did this. I mean, he is pushing these guys way out of their comfort zone. Listen, John 6, verse 5. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him. You see that? That's underlined in my Bible. <laughs> but this he said to test him. You think God ever tests your faith? You betcha. And the test is that you can't do it. <laughs> and you're going to have to trust him. And so, I mean, immediately Philip thinks about how much it would cost 
Okay, yeah, okay, how much are we going to trust God for here? You know, 200 denarii, 200 guys working for a whole day and all getting paid wouldn't be enough to feed these people even a little bit. That's where Philip's mind goes. I mean, he's, he's the human calculator. Andrew says, oh, here's a little guy here. He's got five barley loaves and two fishes. But what is that with so many? How are we going to divide that up? I mean, it's almost hilarious, except it's where a lot of us go. Missionary from some places speaking in a church, let's say they're from Washington State. Missionary speaking, and Bill and Kathy are listening. And as Bill and Kathy listen, these aren't real people. So don't look around for Bill and Kathy. Bill and Kathy are listening. As Bill and Kathy listen, God speaks to both of their hearts and says, I want you to go to Washington and help start a church. They know it. God's calling them. They hear the call. And so afterwards, they talk together. They pray together. They agree, this is what God wants. And then Kathy speaks up. She says, but you know, she says, my parents will never let us take the, grand the grandchildren to Washington. And so as they talk together some more, a week goes by, another week goes by, they finally decide, you know, I think we were mistaken. We're going to stay here, and we're going to give to support missions, but we're not going to go. Now, what, what did they believe about God? Do they believe that God is sovereign, that he has the right to direct the activities of our life? Do they believe that God is big enough to cause Pharaoh to let six million people leave, but not let the grandparents, let the grandchildren go? Linda's been praying about a place to serve at Wynn Baptist Church, another hypothetical character. She's been praying about a place to serve. She's been serious about, oh God, I want to know where to serve. I want to know where you want me to be. And Mike over here, he's been praying about somebody to teach an adult Sunday school class. And one morning while he's praying, God brings Linda to his mind. And so he goes and talks to Linda. And he says, Linda, he said, I think God may be opening up the door for you to come and teach an adult Sunday school class. And immediately, she forgets her prayer life. She forgets the principles that she's been learning and experiencing God. That, that, that you need to pay attention and see where God is working. She forgets all of that. She says, I can't teach. I've never taught before. I'm not, that's not my spiritual gift. Now, what does she believe about God at that moment? Does she believe that the Holy Spirit will enable you and equip you to do anything that God asks you to do? Does she use her giftedness as a kind of excuse to say no? In in each of these cases, each decision says more about their belief about God. In Bill and Kathy's case, it says more about their belief about God than about Kathy's parents. It says more about Linda's belief about God than it does about her abilities. And so God's always leading us out of the comfort zone. Can I, can I just tell you something very truthfully? After kind of following Jesus for 38 years, I've never made a step of faith that felt really easy. He has a way of always causing me to have to step a, a lot further the next step than I've ever gone before. At least that's what it feels like in my heart. You say, are you saying, Pastor, it, gets, it doesn't get easier to trust God? No. That's why we call it a crisis of belief. 
because it's always bigger than my ability to make it happen. It's always something that if God doesn't step in, (laughs) I'm sunk. You know, there was this moment in Jesus' ministry where he visits his hometown. How many of y'all from a place other than when? Bunch of you. You left that town, you go off, and God does something in your life and blesses you, whatever, and, and you find yourself able to really do some neat things in the church where you are, where you're serving. And, um, and this, this is literally what happened to Jesus. God is using him all over Palestine, and he goes home to Nazareth. And there's this amazing statement that occurs in a couple Gospels, but in Matthew 13, 58, listen to what it says. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He was prepared to do mighty works there, but because of their unbelief, he would not. It's not that he could not. I mean, God, we don't bend God's arm when we believe him for things. So in contrast to that, how much faith does it take for God to do a mighty work? How much faith does it take for God to do a mighty work? A dabble, do you? In Matthew 17, when Jesus was teaching the disciples, he said, if you guys had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could speak to this mountain and it would move from here to there. Now, in the whole history of the Christian church, the history of the New Testament, I don't know of any place where any Christian has ever spoken to a mountain and it's moved. Don't believe that's what Jesus was trying to teach in that moment. And in fact, the only way I can ever speak to a mountain and cause it to move is because God told me to speak to the mountain to cause it to move, creating a crisis of belief in me. Father, you want me to stand up in front of everybody and tell the mountain to move? Yes, that's what I want you to do. Jesus said, if that's a situation you find yourself in, if you know what God wants you to do, you know what God wants you to say, you know where God wants you to go, and he says to you, do this, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Mountains move. It has nothing to do with your talents. It has nothing to do with your bank account. It has nothing to do with your abilities. It has everything to do with whether or not you are willing to trust God to use you the way he says he wants to use you. It's your choice. It's your choice.